If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On today's episode, we're discussing the role of idealism in the world of politics. Whether it's tribal nationalism, radical socialism, or environmental activism, the golden ideals of politics are once again taking centre stage. Is a return to idealism dangerous, or a necessary antidote to a bland politics that served no one other than the ruling elite? To help us discuss idealism in politics, we're joined remotely by three leading thinkers, former Conservative MP Rory Stewart, economist Grace Blakely, and Harvard political philosopher Michael Sandel. Our generation is the first generation likely to be less well-off than their parents. I've been told for my whole life that if I work hard and buy a house, that's what I'll be able to get, but actually I'm not going to be able to get that. I've lived through now how many financial crises, a constant period of just utter stagnation. I want things to change. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Isabel Hilton. So we are going to ask each of our panelists to address their attention uh, in the first instance to the question that I um, that I posed as to whether we should uh, reject the return to idealism as a vehicle for dangerous fantasies. Michael, would you start us off, please? Well, thanks so much, Isabel. I think it's certainly true that on the face of it, public discourse uh, has uh, seemed to be about narrow managerial technocratic things. Um, And this inspires no one. And when passion does enter, it comes in the form of shouting matches, where people shout past one another without really listening. I think this has made for an empty, hollow, unsatisfying public discourse. Citizens want politics to be about big things, including questions of values. And I think the discontent that's afflicted politics in democratic societies in recent decades has been a frustration with this empty public discourse. I'm not sure, though, that this empty public discourse doesn't conceal a certain kind of, well, you could call it idealism or 
set of political ideas that are implicit, that govern politics beneath the surface without open public debate. And those ideas, I think, are flawed. I would identify two. One of them is a certain kind of market faith, even a market triumphalist faith, the, the conviction that market mechanisms are the primary instruments for achieving the public good. That's been an idea hovering just beneath the surface of our seemingly technocratic managerial politics of recent decades. And there's a second, which concerns me a lot and which was the subject of my new book, The Tyranny of Merit. It's the idea that those who land on top, the winners of the global economy, uh, the, the idea that they deserve their success, that they've done it on their own, that their success is the measure of their merit, and that they therefore deserve the bounty that a market society heaps upon them, and by implication that those who struggle, those who've left, been left behind, must deserve their fate as well. This is the dark side of meritocracy that I write about in the book. So I think it's a mistake to assume that a seemingly technocratic politics, the one that has predominated in recent decades, um, doesn't conceal um, a, a certain kind of moral dispensation, a kind of attitude and ideology even toward politics. And I think only now we're beginning to surface it, to confront it, and to debate it openly, as we should. Michael, thank you very much. So it may have looked managerial, Grace, but there was an ideology concealed just below the surface. Um, I, I, just to return to the, to the initial question, uh, is this uh, return, this overt return to idealism, something that we should reject. It was pretty dangerous last time around. I think the way that Michael just addressed that point to suggest that what appeared to be a kind of technocratic or managerial politics was actually politics in the interest of a certain group cuts to the heart of the, the point that I would like to make, which is that you can't really have idealism without some understanding of, of materialism. Um, and the, I think that is really what has left our politics over the last 40 years, and it was much more present prior to that. And so kind of what is materialism? Well, if you contrast idealism and materialism, they're two ways of looking at history. One suggests that history is driven forward by ideas, by debate, by people kind of, you know, changing their minds about things and therefore institutions changing. The other one suggests that history is driven forward by kind of, uh, by, you know, technological change, by economic change, by basically things that happen um, to the structures that kind of, uh, that, you know, predominate in our lives and that that's why institutional change happens. Now, on the second view, which is not particularly dominant, we live in a very kind of idealist society uh, in that sense. We kind of very much center ideas in our political discourse. We don't think so much about class anymore. And indeed, it's become very unfashionable to think about class in recent years. Um, because a, a kind of central theme of, uh, of that kind of materialist reading of history is that, uh, particularly when you look at it from a Marxist perspective, history is driven forward by conflict between different classes. And the politics is about 
overt conflict between those two classes over resources. Um, and the story of, the, I suppose, the kind of pre-financial crisis period is one where we were denying the existence of those class interests and therefore ended up with a technocratic managerial kind of politics, which was, which presented itself as uh, a way that we would be able to discover the common good. It was all about, I'm not ideological, I only care about what works. That was the view that was presented to the vast majority of people by our politicians. And yet, most of the time, because of the ideologies, because of the narratives, because of the, um, the you know, the, the nature of the work that these people were drawing on, because of the nature of the interests that uh, were aligned behind them, the things that worked often ended up being the things that actually happened to be in the interests of, uh, of the ruling classes. So you ended up with this kind of technocracy, which presents itself as anti-politics, but which is actually politics that is in the interest of the status quo, that serves to reinforce and support the interests of the groups who are already kind of, you know, in charge uh, and most powerful uh, in our society. And I think that's really what we've seen a backlash against in recent years. It's the realization that what was presented to people, you know, we got the end of history moment, ideological politics is dead. Instead, you will hand over power to a set of politicians who uh, will, you know, Look, seek out the vote of the median voter, you know, the average person in society, and they will thereby put forward policies that are of the most benefit to the maximum number of people. That was the view. That was what we all put into. And then we realized in during the financial crisis and in the period since then that the policies that we were told were based on, you know, uh, the uh, consideration of the common good were actually more based on uh, an attempt to kind of promote the interests of some people over others, even if actually promoting those interests, I mean, you can think about the way in which the financial sector was consistently deregulated, actively harmed the interests of the majority. And so when you see people push back against, you know, the tyranny of experts, that's really what they're pushing back against. It's the absence of any real ability for people to actually debate based on an understanding of their interests because it you know that's supposed to be something that's been banished from political discourse if you were presenting an idea it should be this idea is what works based on our current understanding about how you know the systems that that kind of dominate our lives work that's very little uh, attempt to actually challenge those systems and think about how they could work differently um so Idealism, yes, I think we need new visions of the future, but those visions have to be contested. And that contestation, that conflict will ordinarily take place along uh, lines, along boundaries that are defined by different material interests. I think that's something we have to learn to accept and actually welcome into our politics. Thank you, um, Grace. Rory, uh, you um, sat for the Conservative Party in, in Parliament. Um, a party not noted for uh, a, a willing embrace of big ideals, uh, rather prided itself on being commonsensical. Um, so would, would you reject the notion of the return to idealism, I, I guess, as your party might have put it, as, as a vehicle for dangerous, impractical fantasies? Well, um, I think that's a, a really, really important, exciting question. The, the first thing, though, I think, and I'm speaking here as a working politician, is to understand that politics has always used the language of ideals and values. It's very tempting to imagine that somehow in the era of Tony Blair or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, who are now perceived as sort of moderate centrist politicians, that somehow they communicated to the public in very technocratic, dry managerial language. Of course, they never did. 
successful politicians have always at least pretended to be deeply driven by ideals. And it's a cliche of political campaigning that you win political campaigns off values. Those values uh, may often be quite banal. Uh, it could be simply talking about hope. It could be talking about, as Michael suggests, talking about opportunity and meritocracy. Or it could be talking, if you're on the left, about equality. Um, or more recently, it could be talking about national identity, pride and greatness. But in the end, political campaigns are not really fought on small te technocratic managerial decisions. Those things and politicians who try to present those kinds of things to the public, famously Al Gore tried to do that against George W. Bush, tend to fail. Democratic politics isn't very interested in um, small uh, technocratic discussions. Now, so the question then is, has something happened to the types of values and ideals we're talking about? Because I can't think of a political period where people haven't, at least on the surface, talked about values and ideals. And there I think something important is happening. And I think that is a move against pluralism. I think increasingly people are inclined on every side of the political debate to imagine that they speak for the people, that they have a monopoly on legitimacy that their point of view is correct, and that the other side in the debate uh, is wrong, and to some extent illegitimate, shouldn't really be allowed to participate. The most striking example of that, of course, in Britain was the Brexit debate. Now, of course, most people listening on this call will have been Remain voters, like me, I was a Remain voter, and will find it very easy to have characterized Brexit voters uh, in a particular way. But of course, the truth is, I found, certainly uh, as a working politician on Twitter, that the campaigners on the Remain side echoed the campaigners on the Brexit side very, very closely. Both sides claimed to speak for the people. Both sides claimed that any move against what they wanted was entirely illegitimate. In fact, the Remainers did one of the fundamental populist moves, which is when uh, they found themselves in a position they didn't like, when they lost the referendum, to suggest the referendum itself was illegitimate. That was basically, I'm going to be provocative, what Donald Trump threatened to do if Hillary Clinton had won the US presidential election. And the real challenge that we face now is working out how we can return to a real idea of pluralism, a real um, understanding of why it is our democratic societies are predicated on the idea that there is not a right and a wrong, a legitimate and illegitimate, people who are the real people and people who are not, people who are ignorant and people who are wise, uh, but instead that we have, I think, some shared sense, both of dignity and equality, right, that we're all entitled to our view, regardless of our educational background or whatever, but also that we're all capable of being wrong and that our system is designed uh, to allow us to shift between these things without characterizing the other side as evil imbeciles. And for me. I want to take it on a bit um, to, to the question of the relationship, uh, again, between idealism and, and politics. And, and if you like, what, what's the point of politics? What's the purpose of, of politics? Grace, I, I, you have defended uh, the return of idealism. Um, there is, though, a kind of rather poor historical record uh, of highly idealized promises being made to people, to the demos, uh, which can't be delivered. So, you know, there is a tension 
I, I would suggest, between a kind of politics of, of, if you like, delivery and a politics of promise. And I just wonder, you know, where idealism sits along that spectrum. What's the optimum point uh, at which you would have uh, the role that, that idealism ought to play in, in, in politics in order to deliver whatever political outcomes you think are both possible and desirable? Hmm. So, yeah, I wouldn't defend idealism in the abstract without it having a, a material grounding. And I think that's often the point. Um, I mean, it's, it's generally the point that separates, I would say, liberals from socialists, because if you're a liberal politician, you can go out and say, give us power um, and we will do good things. We are good people and we will do things that are in the interest of the common good. Right. Um, and the uh, mechanisms that we will put in place will be, yeah, broadly kind of in the interests of everyone, in the interests of, of the public, of the people as a whole. Now, from a kind of like informing that with a materialist perspective, what you learn is that nothing, um, no real change can happen without building a kind of countervailing power or a, a kind of um, a force that is able to resist the dominance of the status quo. The thing that I would um, question about the, the discussion that we've had so far is that, yes, we want a kind of a political debate that is informed by lots of different perspectives. But of course, it's very easy to say that when obviously the people who have the best access to the means of communication are often those who are most closely associated with the existing system, the existing status quo. So really the question is, how do we build power to ensure that new voices are able to kind of enter those debates? How do we build power to ensure that when a political race is taking place, um, the, uh, the other side, the side that is kind of arguing for change is better represented? And how do we build power so that you mentioned the fact that promises are often made during elections which aren't delivered after elections? A lot of the time that happens because changing things, changing structures, institutions, changing power relations is very, very difficult, especially if you're looking at this from the perspective of, you know, a capitalist system which is systematically privileged, privileges the interests of, of capital, of the people who own the things over labor, the people who, who work for a living. Um, and changing that requires building power. It's not enough to have nice ideas. It's not enough to go out and kind of present a, a vision of the future, although that is very important for rallying people to your cause. You have to be able to, you know, make sure that there are various different sources of institutional power that will allow people both to express their ideas, their interests, where they deviate from the status quo, and actually fight to make sure that those things are put in place. So for me, that really comes down to a need to actually actively deepen democracy. Now, democracy is a liberal idea, but I think modern socialism is really premised upon the idea that we need to extend the principles of democracy um, within our political system. So get rid of kind of archaic anti-democratic things like the House of Lords, but also extend the principles of political democracy into the realm of the economy. That is the only way that we are able, ever going to be able to build that countervailing force that has both the incentive and the power to change the status quo. So, Rory, Grace want, is very clear that she wants to change the power relations, I mean, the systemic power relations, and that one way to mobilize enough people to do that is to sell a big idea. And, and do you think that is the, the, the point of politics? Well, it can be. I mean, I think the danger of it is that many of the things that matter most to people in their everyday life are complicated and detailed. And that often the push for the big idea is a form of nostalgia 
or a hope that there is some magical grand scheme which is going to somehow transform our societies. The, the, the truth of the matter in, in my own uh, working life as a politician is that the, the work of politics is, of course, generally about making a lot of very detailed trade-offs between different groups. So you know, in a very fundamental sense, are you going to prioritize um, farmers or the environment? Are you going to prioritize urban or rural populations? Or perhaps most importantly in Britain, how do you get the balance right between the amount of energy you put into looking after the elderly compared to looking after young people, right? those kinds of choices? But it's also some very difficult intellectual choices. So uh, everybody on the call is worried about globalization. Nobody on the call has a very clear analysis of exactly what kinds of trade deals they would strike in order to deal with the problems of globalization. Again, uh, many of the things that people are looking for in their everyday lives are understandably a feeling of safety and security around their house. It could be clean air to breathe. It could be uh, decent broadband connections. Many of these things are not um, obviously connected to the grand discussions about class, about equality, about meritocracy. Many of these are genuinely questions of good administration. And um, there's an increasing consensus both amongst the public and amongst intellectuals that they're not really interested in governing well. They see those kinds of questions as somehow beneath them. Or they think anybody who's talking about running stuff well, trying to work out how you clean up the air or sort out broadband, is somehow trying to pull the wool over their eyes and trying to distract people from the big question, which is how do we redistribute wealth, for example. But what worries me about that is that I think that uh, this is partly a form of nostalgia, that our societies over the last 120 years have seen these governments take responsibility for more and more areas and have taken a lot of the low-hanging fruit. Government is more difficult now, in a sense, than it was in 1920, when there was much more to do, when you could bring in women's suffrage, when you could transform civil rights, when you could create a welfare state, when you could increase taxation from what it was before the First World War, which was an average less than 10% of GDP to where it is now, 40, 50% of GDP, which is about all many people want to pay in tax. There's much less room for maneuver, and people are looking for a simpler age uh, where they can play the kind of role played by, I don't know, Clement Attlee after the Second World War, or the kind of role played by FDR in the 1930s, or indeed the role played by Mandela in South Africa. And these are not options really available in most uh, mature democracies. But Michael, the big idea uh, we, we've heard from, from Grace that that is an essential kind of mobilization tool. And it does come back to the question of what, what the point of politics is. You know, is the point of politics to do what can be done to manage a country's problems pra pragmatically, the kind of choices that Rory was talking about? Or, or do we need a kind of big idea to keep a nation sort of focused on where it might think it's going, even if it never actually gets there. Well, Isabel, I would put the, put the problem slightly differently, which is it's not as though we, uh, even the seemingly centrist managerial politics of recent decades um, has been bereft of big ideas. It's been animated by big ideas that have lost their capacity to inspire and right. for good reason. And so I think our challenge now is to uh, diagnose um, the, 
the animating ideas of recent decades, how they've run their course, and what the alternative big ideas might be, specifically the big ideas that have implicitly animated uh, politics in the last three to four decades have been the faith in markets as the primary instruments for achieving the public good, and the belief in merit that if, if chances are equal, those who land on top uh, deserve their uh, rewards. And these two ideas did issue in a politics of, I, uh, of ideas. Rory is right, the uh, centrist politicians like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton in 2016, they didn't offer simply a better management and administration. They offered um, a defense of some combination of these two uh, ideas about markets and about merit. And it took a very particular form. What they offered was, uh, I call it the rhetoric of rising. The idea that if chances are equal and we need to do some work to make chances truly equal, then people should be free to rise as far as their efforts and talents will take them. Now, it's easy to forget that this represents a big idea because it was so familiar, so seemingly uncontroversial. Who could be against the people being able to rise as far as their efforts and talents will take them? What's striking is, well, when, when we hear politicians intone a slogan to the point of mantra that seems obvious and uncontroversial, there's good reason to suspect that it's no longer true, that it no longer fits the facts on the ground. And this, I would suggest, is precisely what became of this rhetoric of rising. It lost its capacity to inspire because the inequalities that were brought about by the market-driven globalization of the past four decades were sufficiently deep and persistent that people realized it was no longer an adequate response to that inequality to say, we will offer individual upward mobility through higher education. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, get a university degree, then you too will be able to clamber up the ladder of success, never mind that the rungs on the ladder are growing further and further apart. So this was the animating idea that organized center-left and center-right politics in recent decades, it lost its capacity to inspire it, and this became evident in 2016 with the backlash of Brexit in the UK, of Trump in the US, and now the question, or so it seems to me, uh, Isabel, is what alternative set of ideas and political aspirations should replace it? It's it's interesting. I, that's an interesting challenge, and I'm I'm not about to uh, produce an option. But I, I, I would observe though that that people who are deeply attached to a political idea tend to have behavioral characteristics in common, whatever the idea is. I, I remember arguing with a, a, a treasury official about the efficacy of markets, and he said in defense of markets, they have never been properly applied, which is exactly what people used to say about communism. Exactly. 
<laughs> I feel that there is a kind of underlying behavioral trope here. Um, right. And the same is said of meritocracy, of course. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And I, I mean, I think the, the challenge here is that, of course, Michael is absolutely right that the, there is a, both a strategic and a normative problem with this idea of meritocracy. I mean, firstly, as you know, he points out in his new book, most of the time, we're not living in anything remotely resembling a meritocracy. The odds are stacked against you in a hundred ways. But even in the extreme example, the sort of Michelle Obama example of somebody who genuinely is able to come from a very difficult background and, and prosper, it's not clear that all the prizes should just go to someone just because they happen to be smarter, happen to work harder. In other words, we have a huge obligation towards people regardless of, to put it in very brutal terms, regardless of um, their, their talent. And that's not just a question about luck or fortune, it's that we have a common obligation to everybody, right? regardless of how they were born, where they are, right. whether they're smart, whether they're not smart, right? whether they work hard, whether they don't work hard, we have a common obligation to them. Um, and but, and then, but then for me as a working politician again, um, you know, I would end up trying to talk about ideas of dignity, ideas right. of obligations towards people. Um, but framing that in practice, bringing that to life is difficult. Again, because we have very, very confused ideas about what really is owed. The left understandably wants to try to portray society as a society in which the top 1% are abusing the bottom 99%. I often felt in Britain that, in fact, the situation was probably that the, for the sake of argument, the top 90% of us were living decent lives and the bottom 10% were living horrifying lives. And because the bottom 10% were not voting and their issues, whether they were illegal immigrants or people with extreme mental illnesses or people suffering from extreme addiction or the kind of people I work with in prison, were not adequately represented by either the left or the right. That the left couldn't really see them because the left wanted to see them only in materialist terms, wanted to only analyze income inequality and think that the solution was redistribution, and found it very difficult to think about the type of policies, the type of moral commitment you would have to take towards those citizens. Sure. Can I just come in there? The point there about, you know, there's 90% of people who are doing fine and 10% of people who aren't, um, I think you know, it would be easy to to think that if you're basically surrounded by the 90% of people who you would say are doing okay, but actually it's, it's much worse than that. Uh, you know, we are sleepwalking into an unemployment crisis in which uh, the vast majority of people who've seen no pay rise in 10 years, who have uh, often a significant amount of debt that means that they're very precarious, their lives are very precarious, who are many of them on the cusp of eviction. Um, they're also, they overlap with the point that Rory made, which I think was correct, which is that they're often the people who've decided not to vote. Now, there's a very interesting book written by uh, Jeff Evans and uh, George Tiley, I think, uh, James Tiley, sorry, called um, the, the Political Exclusion of the British Working Class, the great, uh, I can't remember what the, the main title is. And they look back over voting behavior over the last kind of 50 years, um, and they find that the correlation between your policy preferences and your class identity has largely remained stable. 
working class people favor more distribution, more redistribution, sorry, they favor more left-wing economic policies. But the, what's happened since actually the year that it changes is 1997, is that more and more people have started to drop out of the electorate. So we get into a situation where uh, actually you have a, a relatively small electorate compared to the people who are able to vote and that they are disproportionately likely to be working class people. Right. Um, so low participation, are, which I think is recognized as a problem. And I don't Yes, exactly. Working class people really drop out of the electorate. Point. And but, what they but, say when you ask them, why have you dropped out of the electorate, is that they're all the same. Everyone right. must need the same thing. I'm not getting actually anyone who's really representing my interests. And actually, none of them even look like me. None of them even sound like me. Which There's no me to the next question, which is uh, the, the other um, uh, thing that, that, that is, that is um, invoked against, if you like, idealism in politics, is that it is one of the factors that has delivered us into the kind of tribalism that we are experiencing in which we have polarized societies in which one faction simply won't debate or argue or discuss with another faction because they're not, they're not his or her tribe. And, and that, it surely has been one of the downsides of the mobilization around ideals, that it, that it turns into tribalism. Grace? I think that that has... It's interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, when you look at the kind of culture wars dynamics, you can obviously see that, and I think it comes out in particular around Brexit. And what you often see is that people's economic grievances are mobilized into stories about particular groups. So you have the kind of left behind versus the liberal metropolitan elite. When you ask people about what's really going on there, especially people who are normally characterized as the kind of left behind group, um, they will say that, again, you know, they don't feel that they've been represented in our political system, that they have a lot of kind of deep seated material problems in their lives. And when you ask people in the other category, you know, um, they're often actually, because they're often young people, I, our generation is the first generation likely to be less well off than their parents. I've been told for my whole life that if I work hard and buy a house, that's what I'll be able to get. But actually, I'm not going to be able to get that. I've lived through now how many financial crises, a constant period of just utter stagnation. I want things to change. And you can't, I don't think we can kind of pre, like presented with those views, say it's illegitimate for you to be passionate, for you to kind of bring those ideas in the way that you're bringing them to our political debates, because we don't like them or because they jar with our idea about what politics should right. look like, which it should be based on both sides, surely. Sorry? Both sides say that. I mean, if we well, assume really one side, we hear this from all sides. Michael, maybe, maybe you'd like to think, uh, to, to, to discuss this, because you, after all, live in a society which is extremely polarized and tribal at the moment, where um, identity is very loosely associated with ideas. I think one of the deepest sources of polarization um, in politics today, in the US and the UK, is the diploma divide. We don't normally think of, of this as a matter of tribalism, but uh, in terms of uh, accounting for the, uh, the Brexit vote and the Trump vote, um, more important than income, in uh, predicting who would be for Brexit, who would be for Trump, was whether or not one had a four-year university degree. And I think that this division reflects something deeper, which, um, and, and it goes back to uh, something Grace said earlier when she spoke about the tyranny of experts, the, the, the sense people have rebelling against the tyranny of experts. 
one of the deep sources of, of, of the populist backlash is the sense among many working people that elites look down on them, and especially credentialed elites, those who've been to university. And I think this is connected to what's gone wrong with the rhetoric of rising, because the rhetoric of rising is all about getting a university degree as a condition of dignified work in a decent life. And politically, this plays itself out where increasingly the Democratic Party in the US, the Labour Party in the UK, the Social Democratic Parties of Europe, uh, all of which were once parties that relied primarily on uh, blue collar voters, working class voters, have now become parties of attuned to the professional classes. And the and great many working people have been driven away from these parties, have embraced uh, populist, often authoritarian populist figures. And this is connected to, I think, um, a resentment of credentialism, the credentialism that has come along with meritocracy. And until the the, uh, the mainstream parties, the center-left and center-right parties, figure out how to address this meritocratic hubris, the credentialism of elites, I think the polarization will continue to deepen. But Michael, would you think that that would have gained ground if there hadn't been a material basis for that resentment of credentialism in the sense that the, the, the material basis of, of what you call that, that dignified and decent life hadn't been removed by globalization or undermined by globalization. I think, no, I think that uh, you're right, that the a, a condition of this polarization unfolding was the deep inequality brought about by globalization. But not only that, Isabel, I would say it was that inequality of income and wealth, material inequality, made all the more galling by changing attitudes towards success that said, that insisted, um, those on top have earned it. Here's where the meritocracy comes in, the dark side. Those on top who have earned it and those who struggle must deserve their fate as well. So here I think there is, and here I would uh, pick up on uh, something Rory uh, said earlier. Uh, it's it's partly about inequality, but it's also about dignity and esteem. A great many working people, I think, believe that the work they do is no longer respected, accorded the esteem, the honor, the social recognition it, it once was. It's connected, of course, Isabel, to the deepening inequality. But that inequality um, becomes galling when it's connected to these attitudes towards success, which suggests an alternative ideal and political project, which is about the dignity of work, which perhaps we can, can speak about. And the dignity of work as an ideal is one that will, of course, have competing interpretations. What really does it mean to respect the dignity of work? There could be a version that conservative, creative conservative thinkers and politicians like Rory can work out and express and articulate. And there can be a version that those on the left can work out and articulate. But that would be a better kind of debate than the, the kind of uh, empty, flattened debate uh, to which we've become accustomed.
So, so Rory, what I mean, that argument that that um, people whose uh, self-esteem and whose dignity have been have come under attack find solace in, if you like, big ideas and attachment to those who hold them, which one can describe as tribalism, if you like, and it certainly does seem to be kind of what's the a growing phenomenon in our politics but but surely that is if not inevitable you know not entirely a bad thing that people can refind or rediscover dignity through that kind of attachment even if it is to a tribe yes i mean i, I think i mean respectfully i i want to try to draw a distinction between um what i think are very good arguments made by michael about um the moral problem with the idea of meritocracy and his anxieties about dignity and work and globalization, which I share, and his empirical claim that this is primarily what drives people to vote for Brexit or Trump. Um, it's much less clear in terms of the political science analysis that you can really establish that the reason why people vote for these populist parties are those types of anxieties. It may be a component, but it's far from clear that that is, uh, you know, a necessary or sufficient account of why somebody votes for, for Trump or Brexit. In fact, what's interesting about these movements, of course, is that in the end, you end up with almost half of the voting population voting for these people. And you can draw some sorts of broad generalizations by doing statistical analysis on education and age and race and gender and various other things. But in the end, it's many, many tens of millions of people. And that, of course, necessarily means that the more you look into it, the more varied and peculiar people's motivations are. And I think the other thing I would say to liberals on the call is that we are very, very inclined to uh, say that people voting for our enemies are motivated by resentment, by sort of deep uh, emotional sense of victimhood and unfairness. And we tend to assume that people voting for the guys we like are not motivated by those things. The people voting for the people we like are motivated by reason, by good sense, by a sense of their real interests. My experience dealing with voters is that I, I've never particularly found that, um, that I'm convinced. I mean, I think it's absolutely true that voters are deeply motivated by, um, by emotion, by ideas, um, by their own personal experiences, by their own personal prejudices, by their own psychological formation. But that is absolutely as true for people voting for the left as for the right. It's as true for people voting for Remain as Brexit. So when, you know, just to finish on this, when people say about Brexit, you know, that the people voting for Brexit uh, are motivated by the fact they don't want the world to change. Well, many people I know voting for Remain voted for Remain because they didn't want the world to change. I mean, these are, these, these are deep human emotions. So I, 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 I'm, I haven't fully gone on to your question, Travis, but I just wanted to draw a distinction between, I think, Michael's very powerful philosophical analysis of what is morally troubling about these ideas, um, but slightly distance myself from his attempt to make an empirical claim that he can explain votes for Trump and populism in terms of these particular moral anxieties. Could I make just one quick reply, Isabel? Of course. Uh, I am not suggesting, just to, to be clear, that people who voted for Brexit or for Trump are merely acting uh, with kind of irrational emotion, whereas those on the other side are rational. To the contrary, the whole, the whole point of connecting the diagnosis to the normative argument 
is that it, it seems to me that many of the grievances and sources of anger and resentment by those who have been left behind by globalization, economically and in terms of respect and esteem, I'm suggesting that those are legitimate grievances. They're legitimate grievances. So in, in pointing this out, I'm not trying to suggest that that's merely emotional and those on the other side are rational. To the contrary, I'm saying that those who are distressed by Trump and by authoritarian populists, those on the center left, need to take seriously the legitimate grievances with which the populist uh, back, that the populist backlash expresses, not the elements and the strands of, of xenophobia and racism and misogyny. I think it's important to disentangle the legitimate grievances to do with the inequality brought about by globalization and the, the cultural attitudes, the culture of condescension uh, by elites to disentangle those legitimate grievances from the ugly sentiments with which they are uh, often entangled and to take them seriously. That's my point. Before you come back, we'll have another chance, of course. But I just want to, I mean, I think just, just I think we can agree that, that, that we all can see systemic problems. Um, even if we think the return of ideals is, is perhaps a mixed blessing, but I think we're also moving into or have been moving into slightly uncharted territory in, in, in politics, in a world very much um, in flux. And I just want to coax you into looking at the future a, a little bit. Do you think that our politics will, as it were, revert to a more managerial norm or do you see it becoming more full of uh, ideals and ide more idealistic in, in, in the future? Rory, you wanted to come back, so perhaps you could come back and yeah. address that question at the same time. Yeah, yeah, no, so um, I think uh, an enormous amount, I mean, I think that they're related. I think politics will become more like this, but not primarily because of underlying socioeconomic movements, but primarily as a cultural phenomenon. And a lot of that driven by uh, social media, by celebrity politics, and the way in which we now think about elections and voting. Um, I suppose my point to Michael is that, yes, there will be people who feel justified resentment and are left behind voting for Trump or Brexit. But my point was that it's nearly half the population and many of those people voting are not particularly feeling resentment nor particularly feel left behind. There are millions and millions of people voting for those populist parties who don't feel like that at all. So it's neither a necessary nor a sufficient account of votes for populist parties. Um, what is happening, I think, is, um, and this is something that I've, I was very struck by when I was campaigning to be mayor of London. And for the first time, I was really uh, having to deal day in, day out with polling, with social media, and with the real mechanics of campaign management against an incumbent. And what I realized is that the dominant theme in contemporary politics now is, of course, not really about thinking about, and this is, I suppose, a banal point, but not thinking about what 90% of the public are thinking at any one time. It's about thinking almost entirely about your floating voter, trying to identify the relatively few number of people that you may be able to convince to move across to your side. 
And as you rely more and more on big data and social media people, the techniques which uh, allow uh, companies to sell their products to you on social media uh, encourage politicians increasingly to try to target that key group. And, and often, um, and this is where I suppose that the question with Michael is an interesting one, is the key group that determined the success uh, or defeat of Brexit or Trump mm. that particular group or not, as opposed to all the other people who were always going to vote in those directions anyway, because they were naturally inclined in that direction. And I found in elections today that it's very striking for me, simply the power of celebrity. I think that was always there, but I, I learned very, very painfully that trying to make the kinds of detailed arguments I wanted to make on um, air quality or planting trees in London um, or public space and planning um, were not awfully interesting to people. People basically think across the spectrum that politicians are pretty powerless, that the mayor of London, for example, doesn't have any power, and therefore they're not really judging the candidates on the basis of who they think is more likely to be able to sort out the traffic or get the tube running on time or sort out the signal on the Piccadilly line, they tend to think, well, I like the cut of her or his jib. I like the feeling of that person. I think and there's more, I say, more of that in life as well as in politics. Rory, I hate to cut you off. We're getting a little tight for time and I, I want to make sure that, um, that Grace and Michael get a chance to give us a little vision of the future. Grace, I imagine um, that like many others, you see a lot of dangers in the current tribalism and, and, and polarization of politics. Um, where do you think this is going to go? Yeah, so I think the biggest danger that we're facing at the moment is that, um, you know, our political institutions, broadly our social institutions, are predominantly liberal institutions. Um, and those liberal institutions work very well during periods of stability. So when there's broad buy-in to the way that those systems work, when people believe the system is democratic, when people believe that their lives are going to get better off. The trouble is, of course, when you, as you always do, combine liberal institutions with capitalist political economy, capitalist political economy generates crises, generates frequent crises, it generates inequality, it generates actually a capturing of our democratic institutions that leads people to feel that they no longer represent them. And as those, uh, those crises deepen, which I think is what we're seeing at the moment, you start to have a danger that the political class, that the political institutions that govern our society become increasingly um, aloof from the lived experience of most people. And when that happens, that is when you get, uh, you know, you get a, a massive danger that the distance between people who are in those institutions and everyone else dramatically expands and everyone else feels like they don't have any influence over politics, that they lose that sense of traction on how our society works. And when that happens, you start looking for change outside of the status quo. That's when you start to see social unrest. That's when you start to see political movements really kind of take off. Now, as someone on the left, you would think, right, we can hope we can marshal that energy to deliver a really fundamental transformation of our institutions. And for me, that centers on the idea of democracy. It's actually a deepening of liberalism. It's actually, you know, tackling those problems around respect and esteem and a sense of being kind of trampled over by saying, right, let's give these people power in all the institutions that affect their lives. Let's give people power in their workplaces. Let's give people power in the state. Let's give people power in their communities and tackling it that way. The danger is the right says we will actually, you know, 
act on your behalf by exerting power over others, by keeping migrants out, by shutting down borders. And that's the danger that I would think we've, we face at the moment. Isn't that also a, a danger in, in the commitment to ideals, that you get a kind of tyranny of the majority, that you get an exclusion of other views as illegitimate? We get a tyranny of the minority at the moment. And again, you know, we're so used to, as as uh, people who are committed to idealism, having these conversations about politics, divorced from economics, divorced from class, divorced from an understanding about actually how those political ideals, to which we are undoubtedly committed, ideals around democracy, about representation, end up happening in practice. And in practice, more often than not, in more, of, in more you know, states in the world than not, you see those institutions being captured. And when that happens, they, you know, the legitimacy crumbles. That's what we're facing at the moment. We're facing a crisis of legitimacy in all of our institutions. Unless we can tackle that by giving people a voice, by giving people a say, by allowing people to actually make the changes that they think need to happen, those institutions will crumble. Michael, I'm just encouraging you to put your, your futurist's hat on. Um, do, you, do you see politics becoming more or less imbued with ideals in the future? Which, which, which trend do you see winning? I would, I would say first that um, I think Grace is on to an important point when she emphasizes the widespread sense of disempowerment that citizens have, and that this disempowerment is connected to what some would call the oligarchic capture of representative institutions. And in my country, that has a great deal to do with the unfettered role of money in campaign finance. So I think that's a very important a point that Grace has made. As for hope for the future, and we should uh, uh, we should press for some rays of hope, Isabel. Uh, I think you're right to invite us to do that. I think that if part of the problem is that we need to shift um, our political debate to focus more squarely on the dignity of work and what that might mean in practice. There is a possible opening in our experience during this pandemic of our deep reliance on workers we often overlook. Um, I'm thinking here not uh, only of the hospital workers who are caring for COVID patients, but for all of those workers who enable those of us who are able to work from home, to work remotely, to do so, delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, lorry drivers, home health care providers. These are not the best paid or the most honored workers. And yet now we all recognize the importance of the contribution they make to the common good. We call them key workers or essential workers in the American vernacular. And this could be an opening for a, for a new politics of the common good that took as its starting point the question of how do we accord appropriate reward economically, but also appropriate esteem in terms of dignity and respect for those who make valuable contributions to the common good that are not properly captured by the workings of the labor market. This would be an opening, I would think, for politicians um, uh, of the, uh, the conservative politicians and those of the left to work out their agendas and the agendas will different it will be different the interpretations of what it means truly to respect the dignity of work in practice 
may differ. But if we debate that question coming out of the experience of this pandemic, then this can be at least a small step, I would say, Isabel, toward renewing a politics of the common good. Which I, I'm guessing would involve us rethinking the notion that, um, that money is the mark of value, that that is how we value things. We pay people more and we value them more. That would have to be rethought pretty radically, would it not? It would, and you put your finger on, on the central premise that we would need to challenge. We easily slide into the assumption in market-driven societies like ours that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But this is a mistake. It's a mistake that, that's highlighted by our reliance on key workers during this pandemic. It's, and I think that if we're talking here, Isabel, about bringing moral considerations, values, conceptions of the common good directly into the heart of our public discourse, this would be a place to start. What counts as contributing to the common good? It's been a mistake to outsource our moral judgments about that to markets. We, we as democratic citizens, we, <laughs> we should grab it back. <laughs> we, we should take it back and debate it as democratic citizens. But, Ron, Michael, can I just, 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 I mean, the only thing that worries me about this is that I think, Michael, I, I'm misunderstanding. It almost sounds as though you're falling back into the trap of meritocracy. You've just redefined a different form of meritocracy. I have a different view. I don't think the idea is that we owe particular esteem particular value to the contribution of particular working people. I think we owe equal esteem and dignity to everybody, regardless of whether they work or not, and regardless of whether or not their contribution is valuable. For example, retired elderly people, for example, the long-term unemployed, for example, right. people with extreme health. I'm very worried that what started as a very exciting idea, which is that we weren't going to be seduced by the idea that certain people deserve more esteem, deserve more right. respect. Right has now been hijacked by you finding a new category of people, COVID workers who suddenly require esteem, which suddenly implies that other people who aren't working are not entitled to the same dignity. This is a fascinating uh, new debate you've launched, Rory, but I can't yeah. let you do it 90 seconds from the end. I'm afraid we're going to have to organize a different one. I would love to continue. Uh, we have gone through this territory in, in a, a fantastic way, looking at ideals as mobilization, ideals as a vehicle for change, ideals as a means of delivery, ideals as a formation of tribes. Uh, this is a both very material to our politics and, and very important philosophically. And I must give a big thank you to my panel here uh, for tackling this, uh, this thorny topic uh, with such grace and intelligence. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.